Join Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin for a new monthly edition of the Capital Ideas Podcast. It's your look inside one of the world's largest asset managers. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Invest 30 minutes today. American Funds Distributors, Inc. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. Good morning. I'm Brian Curtis. Here are the stories we're following today. U.S. President Joe Biden has written a letter to congressional leaders explaining the military strikes on Iraq. Ed Baxter has that story and more from the 960 Newsroom in San Francisco. Ed? Exactly right, Brian. The theme is that they're meant to deter further Iran proxy forces from attacking to degrade and disrupt efforts against U.S. military installations. And the U.S. says it has now shot down 10 more drones and five missiles launched by Iran-backed Houthis. Now, Bloomberg's Jonathan Tamari says the Biden administration is walking a very fine line here. There are reports from our colleagues at Bloomberg that uh, the U.S. is even considering military strikes against the the Houthis. Uh, But that is something that is a step they would not take lightly, again, with the fear that you don't know where these things will spiral in the Middle East, and they don't want to draw in, the U.S. doesn't want to be drawn into a conflict there, and they don't want to be drawn, their allies, to be drawn into a wider conflict. And ABC military analyst Mick Mulroy says they'll also be carrying out sea attacks if necessary. Basically, offshore military assets that can deliver fire onto targets to assist them. So that is one of the reasons why the United States did this. Uh, They obviously don't want it to happen, but they're trying to deter it from happening. Now, two major shipping companies say they will limit shipping in the Red Sea. We'll have more on that in just a few minutes here. Meanwhile, in Israel, its military chief says the war against Hamas will last for many Many more months, and retired U.S. Navy Admiral James Trevitis says that the White House is giving more stern warnings to prevent a prolonged conflict. There's a host of long-term costs that's going to be associated unless the Israelis start to dial it back. Trevitis also saying that something needs to be done very quickly to get aid into Gaza. The Biden administration has announced its final package of the year for Ukraine. It's a $250 million package weapons and equipment. Secretary of State Antony Blinken says the aid is imperative for Ukraine to fight against Russian aggression, but that it is imperative now that Congress act when it gets back. Donald Trump has won another round of the legal fight to keep him, keep him off the Republican primary ballot in Michigan next year after the state Supreme Court left intact a lower court ruling that rejected efforts to bar him over his role in the January 6th attack on the Capitol. Michigan Secretary of State Jocelyn Benson says she had to step aside for the ruling. This isn't over, but the question of who should decide squarely still remains in the courts, not with election administrators like myself. it still make it to the Supreme Court. Meanwhile, prosecutors in Trump's election interference case are asking a judge to rein in Trump's rhetoric. Bloomberg's Nancy Lyons has details. Federal prosecutors working for special counsel Jack Smith are asking a judge to keep Donald Trump and his attorneys from claiming to jurors that the case was brought against him as a partisan attack by the Biden administration. In the motion, the prosecutors say Trump is trying to inject, quote, irrelevant and prejudicial issues into the case. The motion was filed two weeks after Judge Tanya Chutkin froze the case while an appeals court considers 
Trump's claim that he is immune from prosecution. In Washington, Nancy Lyons, Bloomberg Radio. Thank you, Nancy. Global News, 24 hours a day and whenever you want it with Bloomberg News Now in San Francisco. I'm Ed Baxter and this is Bloomberg. All right, Brian. All right, Ed, thank you very much. Time now for the top business stories of the hour. Well, as mentioned earlier, Apple has won a court ruling pausing a U.S. sales ban on its newest smartwatches. The ruling buys the company some time in an ongoing patent dispute with medical device maker Massimo. And as Bloomberg's Mark Gurman predicted earlier, the watches are already back on the store shelves. Getting this uh, reprieve this, via this emergency order through an appellate court in D.C., that definitely puts the watch on track to probably go back on sale uh, today uh, through January 10th at minimum. January 10th is when the ITC is going to respond and try to shoot down this motion. But this particular court in D.C. has a history of not granting these emergency um, lifts if they don't believe that this will stick long term. That's Bloomberg's Mark Gurman. Mark will join us later in this hour. And the ITC that he referred to there, the U.S. International Trade Commission, blocked the import and sale of two Apple Watch models earlier this month, citing patent infringement. And Apple stock traded essentially sideways today. Well, the New York Times is suing Microsoft and OpenAI. We get the story from Bloomberg's Karen Moscow. In a lawsuit filed today, the New York Times claims the technology firms relied on millions of copyrighted articles to train chatbots like ChatGPT and other AI features, allegedly causing billions of dollars in statutory and actual damages. The Times did not specify its monetary demands. Representatives from Microsoft and OpenAI did not immediately respond to requests for comment. The suit is a sign of the increasingly fraught relationship between the media and a technology that could upend the news industry. Karen Moscow, Bloomberg Radio. Shipping giant Maersk is preparing to resume sailing through the Red Sea. The move is thanks to a new multinational maritime task force to protect vessels from attacks by Houthi rebels from Yemen. And as Bloomberg's Brendan Murray notes, at the moment, the decision by Maersk is the exception, not the rule. It seems that they're going to take the ships crossing through the Suez Canal on a case-by-case basis and on the basis of re- reducing the risk of these attacks. So if they can, if they can uh, be, be, get assurances that, the, that they're going to have the, the, the protection from the navies that are, that are allied to, uh, to protect uh, maritime shipping, then it, it sounds like they'll do that. That's Bloomberg's Brendan Murray reporting. Maersk is the world's second largest container line. In the meantime, shipping giant Hophog Lloyd said that it would keep its vessels away from the Red Sea. The container liner said it would continue to reroute its vessels via the Cape of Good Hope. That's a detour of several thousand miles. It follows a spate of attacks on merchant ships on a route that handles about 12% of global trade. Goldman Sachs and Morgan Stanley expect the slump in China's housing construction to get worse in 2024. We get the story from Bloomberg's Bonnie Ao in Hong Kong. Consensus from 10 investment banks and brokerages says the housing slump will worsen next year. Goldman economists have one of the most bearish forecasts. They expect a double-digit contraction in real estate's fixed asset investment next year. Morgan Stanley sees the gauge dropping 7%, while UBS expects a 5% decline. If they're right, that leaves China on track to post three straight years of contraction in property construction. In Hong Kong, I'm Bonnie Ao, Bloomberg Radio. Join Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin for a new monthly edition of the Capital Ideas Podcast. 
It's your look inside one of the world's largest asset managers. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Invest 30 minutes today. American Funds Distributors, Inc. Success is more than the final destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's discipline. It's teamwork. And it's the drive and passion inside of us that comes before all recognition. It's what Stiefel's been doing for over 130 years. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel's become one of the fastest-growing wealth management and investment banking firms in the country. Our financial advisors go beyond traditional wealth management to provide clients with direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises and a leading middle market investment bank. Because success is the drive it takes to keep climbing, the passion to keep investing, the best of each of us made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Start your journey at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. This is Bloomberg Daybreak Asia. Let's say good morning, Asia time to Ben Emmons, Senior Portfolio Manager and Head of Fixed Income at New Edge Wealth. Ben, great to have you with us, especially during this holiday season. A lot seems to have been discounted now in markets uh, over the past couple of months. No need to mention all of them, but the Fed's at the center. The soft landing is there, too, and seasonal conditions and all of that. So it seems like we would need some new catalysts in the new year if we're expecting um, risk assets to perform well. What might they be? Hey, Brian, happy happy holidays. Um, I think that it's going to be about the economy, first and foremost, yeah, I've noted that some of the data coming through, let's say manufacturing data or, or services, there's some uptick there or at least some improvement from the last uh, uh, weeks in, in, say, November and December. And so I think that if the economy shows some acceleration in, in January, then that would be the catalyst for, for the risk asset uh, rally to continue. Otherwise, it will be back towards trying to focus on the big event next year, which is the presidential election, and any uncertainty that comes along with that, right? So I think, first and foremost, the economy, Brian, and it does look like we're having a little bit of an improvement of momentum there again. So your corner of the sandbox, uh, obviously, is fixed income. Can we see bonds and stocks rally together now for a while or for how long? Yeah, that seems to be the uh, that we're back to that idea, right? The wedge of the you know, rising S&P and falling bond yields. And, of course, this is all driven by the inflation picture that continues to improve. The latest number of the core PCE deflator was, uh, was very encouraging. In fact, actually, as you may have read, I mean, I, I thought there was somewhat level of deflation start to show up there in that index. This helps, obviously, bond yields to go down, and that, in turn, uh, drives up stock price, at least, that has an influence. I think that is to an extent can, you, you could see that continue. But as I mentioned, like if the economy shows again this resilience, this sort of acceleration of and, and strength that we've seen before, I do think there will be a bit of a fork in the road for bond yields. So let's see what, what happens here. We do have a lot of new supply coming in the, the new year for treasuries. That still will be something that the treasury market has to confront next year in terms of you know lots of supply and, and potentially strong economy. We had strong demand for some $58 billion of five-year notes. Uh, and uh, as mentioned, that, that sent uh, bond yields slumping. And earlier yesterday, I guess it was, we had, um, we had some solid two-year auctions that drew buyers in. Uh, what do you attribute that to? 
yeah, I think this is about the year-end uh, rally in both stocks and bonds. So it, it must be that there's still a fair bit of funds or, or other investors that are were underweight in their duration in their portfolio or underweight treasuries. I think that's part of that, that you're getting that, that short covering, as they say. Um, on the other hand, obviously, as I mentioned, the, the um, inflation data is very encouraging for bond yields. And it does show up in, in the pricing of rate cuts, right? We're now about about 175 basis points of cuts priced by March of 2025. So I think that does fuel a bit of the demand coming into these treasury auctions. But as I said, like, you know, it could change again when the new refunding is announced in, in January and it may be more supply again. So it may be just a temporarily, you know, reprieve here at these auctions at the moment. So if we continue to see bonds do well, you think it's more due to inflation coming down and not concerns about stumbling growth ahead. And if that is your core belief, um, expand on it a little bit. Yeah, I think, Brian, that the inflation picture has dramatically shifted. Um, You know, for some time I was too in that camp of that inflation was sticky and the Fed had no choice but not only to stay higher for longer, but potentially had to raise a bit further. Uh, But that turned out to be not entirely right because you know, the pandemic effect on inflation is really easing off. And I think what, as I mentioned, the PCE deflator that came out last Friday, drilling that basket, you know, there's about 15% of the index is now in a more consistent deflation, meaning prices are down more than 1% for the last six months. And so that becomes a, I think, a different story for the bond market next year. If that continues that deflationary trend, and we're getting even more uh, deflationary pressure in, in the CPI and PCE indices, then I, I cannot see the 30-year yield staying where it is now. It will be a lot lower, right? We want to yeah. go to price in more rate cuts. So I think that's still potentially the story. I saw your piece yesterday about the PBOC providing a lot of excess liquidity into the markets, uh, liquidity that is not finding its way into the Chinese equity market. Uh, is it finding its way into U.S. assets? I think to the extent it is, and, and it's somewhat of an indirect way, right? Because, you know, as we as you know, like the, the, when the PBC injects liquidity into the Chinese banking system, that, that's where it will be. And I think the Chinese banks either put that money into Chinese bonds or in deposits, or they, they buy, sometimes have to buy dollars, right, on behalf of the PBC. But as you know, that the yuan has been strengthening sort of since, I think, mid-November or so. And the euro has been strengthening too. So I think it comes through the weakness of the dollar. And that weakness of the dollar is obviously affecting commodity prices and also stock prices and emerging markets. So it's a bit that, I think, indirect effect. I guess is that the one is strengthening on this idea that if, if this liquidity injection, which, by the way, is quite substantial now, it's three and a half trillion you won, 500 billion of dollars, uh, if that does start to have some sort of positive effect on, on the uh, Chinese economy, that the strength of the yuan, you know, is, is being carried over to the weakness of the dollar and sort of that indirect effect on global assets. Yeah. Yeah, no, I, I wasn't, I didn't mean to cut you off. I mean, I think it's yeah. an interesting <laughs> thought because, you know, uh, China's exports, South Korean exports, if they stay strong, will, will send one kind of message. And if the yuan stays strong, it, it could actually help the consumer in China to a certain degree. Uh, so I, I, I wonder whether or not, I mean, do you think there's much likelihood that we could get mean reversion next year that maybe U.S. and European assets move sideways and we get some rallies in Chinese and Hong Kong stocks? They've been moribund. 
Yeah, they've been very moribund. And I think, you know, that, that sort of idea of what we're seeing in small caps in the U.S., like this catch-up idea, because that's been the lagging sectors, right? And against tech that you get some sort of similar effect internationally, like, yeah, Chinese stocks and Hong Kong stocks have really lagged this year. They're one of the few markets that actually are down with quite substantial amounts. So if this yuan strength is, is a signal of, as you mentioned, the export sector yep. is improving, industrial produ- uh, profits overnight were improving, yeah, then yep. the Chinese stocks have some, some scope to rally. Yeah. yeah, I think that would make a lot of people happy. Uh, anyway, thanks, Ben. Ben Emmons, Senior Portfolio Manager, Head of Fixed Income at New Edge Wealth. This is Bloomberg Daybreak Asia, your morning brief on the stories making news from Hong Kong to Singapore and Wall Street. Look for us on your podcast feed every day on Apple, Spotify, and anywhere else you get your podcasts. You can also listen live each day on Bloomberg 1130 in New York, Bloomberg 991 in Washington, Bloomberg 1061 in Boston, and Bloomberg 960 in San Francisco. Our flagship New York station is also available on your Amazon Alexa devices. Just say, Alexa, play Bloomberg 1130. Plus, listen coast to coast on the Bloomberg Business app, Sirius XM Channel 119, the iHeartRadio app, and on Bloomberg.com. I'm Brian Curtis. Join us again tomorrow for all the news you need to start your day, right here on Bloomberg Daybreak Asia. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.